Amen. All right. Well, it's great to see all of you men here, and uh, knowing that uh, you're busy, we're all busy, <clears throat> it's good and right to uh, pull ourselves away every now and then, uh, just to ask ourselves some basic questions of whether or not we are breathing the cultural air, and whether or not we are becoming accustomed to things that we should not become accustomed to in our lives, and particularly with the issue of manhood, uh, where there's so much cultural confusion about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and even in the church, uh, there's increasing confusion about just basic things as what does it mean to be a man. I mean, can you imagine our great-great-grandfathers sitting around asking what does it mean to be a man? They just knew, and yet uh, it can be a confusing topic even, even in our churches, and in spite of the fact that God has said a great deal about uh, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman in, in his word, <clears throat> I'm going to be uh, in the text tonight of uh, 1 Kings 2, uh, 1 through 9. So 1 Kings 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And the Bible says that when David's time to draw and die drew near, so he's about to die, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. And show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. Now he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. There's also with you Shemai, the sons of, son of Gerah, the Benjaminite from Bahirim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you're a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Now, tonight's topic is dealing with cowardice, how to, how to handle cowardice, our tendency to be cowardly, because in a fallen world, in a fallen world, this is a very big temptation for everyone, but particularly men, men who are called to lead, provide, and protect that inherently requires courage are definitely going to be tempted and tried in the areas of cowardice. It's one of the markers of biblical manhood <clears throat> is courage. In a particular context, we, uh, when I was a much younger man, I was in a discipleship group, and we were in a room with a bunch of men, and there were some women in another room, and we were supposed to write down in our group, what are some characteristics of a biblical man? And the ladies were supposed to write down characteristics of a biblical woman. And so in our group, we were writing down things like he's got to have faithfulness, he's got to have peace, he's got to have patience, and we pretty much were putting out the fruit of the Spirit, and somebody wisely raised their hand in our group and said, what are some things that we would put on this in terms of what does it mean to be a biblical man? 
that the women would not be putting over there. Because right now, the women could be putting the same exact things, and they would be correct. But what is distinct about Christian biblical manhood that requires certain things, but what would be distinct about it? Because let's face it, uh, there are no generic people. You're either a male human being or a female human being, and there are no generic Christians. You're either a male Christian or a female Christian, and how you live out your Christian life is going to be determined in a lot of ways based solely on whether or not you're a man or a woman. And so there are most passages in the Bible that deal with, with manhood in particular happen in the context of marriage. But in this case, we've got a unique opportunity to get a glimpse into a father-son relationship between David and Solomon and hear what Solomon has to say, or what David has to say as last words to his son. So David, first, as he's making, giving these last words, points us to the fact and points his son Solomon to the fact is that really being a man has to do with certain character, biblical character, and how does that play itself out? He says, I'm about to go the way of the, all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. Be strong and do what men do. Now, this strength that he's pointing Solomon to is probably something that they've discussed before. This, this phrase, be strong and show yourself a man, certainly had come up in conversations before. He's just saying, be a man, do what men do. Um, these are important words, right? This is a father on his deathbed, maybe thinking that he's, these are the last words he's going to be able to speak to his son. So these are important words. He is uh, encouraging him to be strong. Why would he do that? Why would, he, why would the last words be, be a man? Well, I think part of it is, is that David grew up in some harsh conditions, and David grew up as a warrior, a shepherd. Uh, Solomon has grown up in a palace his whole life. And I got to tell you, I've never grown up in a palace, but I watched it on TV, and uh, you grow up in a palace, you got people waiting on you all the time, you're just going to be softer than the average guy. You're gonna, you can't help it. You are not going to be as tough as other guys because you've got people waiting on you. I envision Solomon walking around that palace with an embroidered robe, having people make his favorite sandwich and bring his favorite drink and just can have whatever he wants to. He's probably a little spoiled, and David is concerned he's going to be a little soft because Solomon is not just going to be a man. He's getting ready to be the king. And David is concerned about his heritage, as every man gets concerned about his heritage and his lineage later on in his life. What is he going to pass on? Uh, Younger men should be thinking about that a lot sooner, but typically a man over 50 starts to think through, what am I leaving behind and how can I impact this greater good generationally? So he says, be strong, but this isn't just pick yourself up by your bootstraps kind of strength. Basically... (coughs) David is connecting it to first obeying God, knowing what God has said. So he says, keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses. So he wants Solomon to be very familiar with what Moses has said. And I think probably in particular, in addition to the Ten Commandments and other things, Moses in Deuteronomy 17 wrote some real important words with regard to what a king was supposed to do and how he was supposed to act. And a king was not supposed to amass a lot of horses for himself. He was not supposed to amass a lot of chariots for himself, not a lot of silver, not a lot of gold. 
He was not supposed to marry many women. He was not supposed to marry foreign women. He was supposed to use his position for the good of others, not for his own self. The first act of a king when he got into office was that he was required to write, handwrite his own copy of the law. Now, I don't know about you. I, I do not have a handwritten copy of the Bible. Um, but I guarantee you, if you did have a handwritten copy that you wrote by your own hand, you would be a lot more familiar with it than you are right now. Now, that's not the only way to become familiar, but what, what Moses wanted a king to do was first be incredibly familiar with the words of God so that he could govern and lead well. And that would have include, of course, leading courageously. So David is simply telling Solomon, you've got to have a certain character to your manhood. And that first is obey God, know what God has said, and then incline your heart to do what God has said to do. But secondly, there's a context here. While manhood does require obedience to God, there's a certain way in which a man will live it out that will look very different than a woman because of the calling that he has on his life to lead, provide, protect. It's going to look very different. And it looks very different here as Solomon gets particular instruction from David on what David expects him to do. He's going to have to go after and get revenge. Moreover, you know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me? How he dealt with me, he shed blood in a time of peace, and he says, look, you're going to have to go get some revenge on this guy. Very different words from how he would coach up a daughter, I think. He might very well, with a daughter, say the first part, obey God. That's what I'm telling my daughter. Obey God. I'm telling everybody in my house, obey God, obey God. But he would not tell his daughter, go get revenge, son of Joab, son of Zer- or Joab, the son of Zeruiah. He, uh, he also says to Solomon, deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, because those guys helped David when David was running from his son Absalom was trying to kill him. These guys protected him, and he says, look, I told them I would care for them the rest of their lives, so very literally I need them to have a place at, our ta- at your table, but also figuratively, you better take care of those guys. You need to provide for those guys. You're going to have the means and the authority to take care of people, and you've got to take care of these. And my favorite one is the last one. He says, and then you have with you Shimei, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite. And basically, he cursed David. And David told him when they went down to the Jordan to meet, he said, I swore by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. But now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless. You're a wise man. You'll know what you ought to do. And you shall bring his gray head, gray head down with blood to shale. I mean, he's saying, I, didn't, I told him I wouldn't kill him, but I didn't tell him you wouldn't kill him. So you go kill him. I, you know, you're a wise guy, you'll know what to do, and you're going to, I mean, he can't resist this, even as a dad, given the last instruction, bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. He's not telling his daughter to go do that. And we know this instinctively. Why? Because these types of conversations between a father and a son are not just culturally prescribed conversations. Being masculine is not just some kind of sociological construct that we created on our own. It's rooted in the creation account before sin came into the world where God made Adam and gave Adam certain responsibilities to tend the ground, to provide for his family, to protect, to care. Even in the fall, God, Satan comes to Eve, tempting Eve, but God comes to Adam, holding Adam responsible. Adam has a leadership role in this whole first family. And so we're made this way. We're made 
to lead. We're made to provide. We're made to protect. And that's why even instinctively, you know certain things that you're supposed to do even if you're not even a Christian. A lot of men just kind of instinctively know because it's wired in a pre-fall creation. So around the 9-11 attacks over a decade ago, I had to fly. And I didn't want to fly. Nobody wanted to fly. It was right after the attacks, and we were all pretty sure that we had not taken care of all of our security problems. And so I remember getting on a plane. I landed in Atlanta. As soon as I got off the airplane, bells started, alarms were going off. Delta agents were yelling to get out of the building, get out of the building. We were all sure that this was it. And so everybody's running around, uh, people running women crying, kids crying, men were crying. I mean, it was just everybody. I was not one of those men. I just want you to know, but uh, they were, they were crying. And um, I remember seeing an elderly woman standing by herself and she seemed paralyzed with fear. And so I saw her and I walked over to her and I said, ma'am, I put my arm around her. I said, ma'am, I'm scared. Will you hold me? I didn't say that. Y'all know I didn't say that. Uh, ask an older, elderly woman to hold me. Uh, I don't even ask my own grandmother to hold me uh, in a nice time. Now, do you know why every one of you were silent thinking, what, what goofball invited this guy to come speak? Because you know in your heart that it's wrong for a 30-something-year-old man to go to an elderly woman in a time of crisis and say, ma'am, will you hold me? You know it's wrong in your own heart. And it's not just because it's something your father's taught you, although they might have reinforced it in you and they may have been intentional about teaching that to you. You would know that anyway, even in a fallen world, because that's how God made you. It's the same reason why those of you guys that are married and you hear a noise in the middle of the night, you don't nudge your wife and say, hey, you go check it out, honey. I'll stay right here and I'll I'll keep the bed warm while you go take care of it. You don't do that. It doesn't matter if she has a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. That does not matter. You go out there, you head it off, and she may have to come down there after you've given it your best shot and she cleans up the mess and takes care of the guy in the end. But you know you don't send her first. Because that's how God made you. That's not just some sociological construct. And so all all David is doing is what is natural to say, here are some things you're going to have to do. And look, David David is going to require is 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 pointing Solomon to some areas of living, (coughs) to some areas of living that are going to require courage. Now, this ends up taking an interesting twist because what happens in Solomon's life is he horrifically disobeys everything his father told him, okay? You you just fast forward a few chapters in 1 Kings and in chapter 9, 10, 11. He, He violates every single law that Moses said kings were not supposed to do. He did it, and he did it to the nth degree. You're not supposed to amass gold for yourself. And 1 Kings 10 says that, All of Solomon's cups were inlaid with gold. The author of 1 Kings is just making a point to show how he violated every single thing. Silver was worth nothing in the day of Solomon. Why not? Because he had so much of it. You need a little money? 
go out there and scoop up a cup of dirt and try to get some money for that. Nobody's going to give you a penny for that. Why? Because it's so plentiful. It's not worth anything. A cup of dirt is not worth even a penny. And that's the way silver was. It was so plentiful that it was not worth anything. He had so much of it amassed. And then the author of 1 Kings lays out how many horses Solomon had, how many chariots Solomon had, how many wives he had, how many foreign wives he had, to the point where Solomon had to build places of worship so that his foreign wives could worship their foreign gods. He had violated every single thing. And so what this should point us to is not just the failures of Solomon, but to remind us that there's a Christ-likeness to manhood. Jesus was 100% God, and he was 100% man. If you want to know what a perfect man looks like, then you look to Jesus. He lived his life on this earth as a human male, 100% God, 100% man. And so in the Old Testament, a lot of times people get... uh, discourage reading the Old Testament because they don't, aren't sure which kingdom is this, which kingdom is that, and that, that, that does take some, some, uh, some study. But really, if you want to read the Old Testament, you remember Jesus is our perfect prophet, priest, and king. And most of the Old Testament is about prophets, priests, or kings. And you can read, and they're either good prophets pointing us to our perfect prophet, good kings pointing us to our good, perfect king, uh, good priests pointing us, or They're bad priests, prophets, and kings. Either way, they're all constantly pointing us to Jesus Christ, our perfect prophet, priest, and king. And so now when you read the failures of Solomon, it should be reminding us of the perfections of Jesus Christ. He perfectly balanced this masculine understanding of compassion and provision with a woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery. Uh, You've got him turning over the tables of the money changers in the temple. I mean, I just want you to envision somebody coming here and ripping these pews and throwing these pews out on the thing. I mean, you would be astonished watching somebody come in and do that. That's Jesus. He's perfectly manifesting this righteous indignation and being angry without sinning. We, we have a, a, a confused understanding of Jesus partially because of the pictures we've seen over the years pictures i've ever seen of jesus in children's literature and other places i mean it's him his hair is perfect his cheeks are real rosy his beard is perfectly coiffed and he's always sitting with sheep right he's always sitting and a sheep is nuzzling his cheek and i mean that let's just think through this for a second jesus grew up in the middle east okay walked everywhere mostly walked everywhere grew up in the homes of a carpenter Without power tools. These guys are doing everything by hand. Now, my dad worked with his hands his whole life. My dad was a lineman for the power company. And my dad's forearms were that big in the height of his work because he worked with his hands all day long. And his legs were strong. He's climbing poles. And everything was done with his hands. And so people that are carpenters, mechanics, and others that just, their, their muscles develop differently than, a, say, a professor, uh, you know. So uh, my muscles develop differently uh, uh, than, than some other guys. And... Uh, I remember my dad would sit in, the, in, in his truck, and he'd roll up his sleeves. I mean, I knew what was coming, right? And you know what's coming. He'd roll up his sleeves, and he'd squeeze his steering wheel as hard as he could squeeze. He'd say, look at that. And then, I mean, just as far as muscles that I did not know existed were there. Jesus would have had big forearms. I mean, this guy would have been wired up. Uh, he worked with his hands. Uh, <clears throat> he's growing up in the Middle East, walking everywhere, and there's no sunblock 
right? There's no SPF 51 that everybody's putting on their skin. His, his skin would not have been rosy. It would have been cracked, dark, weathered, and, and just burnt. Uh, that's not rosy. That's just burnt, ugly skin. And his beard would not have been perfectly cut. Uh, his hair would not have been, I mean, perfectly. I have a bunch of beauty parlors. Everybody's going to that. So he would not have looked anything like what he, he's not a, too many men have in mind Jesus as a precious moments figurine, and that is not what he's about. In fact, the Bible says his eyes are a flame of fire, his heads are full, his head is full of crowns, his robe is dipped in blood. He has a sword coming from his mouth on his robe is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will judge and make war and he will strike down nations as an act of his righteousness. I mean, this is the image of Jesus Christ. It needs to just be accurate. Because he was the God-man, and he perfectly lived out what it would be like to be a man. And so we seek and observe the challenges, a perfect manifestation of the challenges we might, we might face. But then finally, as we try to think through cowardice, well, how might God use certain things in our life to help eliminate cowardice, a reticence, to do what we ought to do. I mean, that's kind of just how I would briefly define cowardice, this reticence to do what we know we ought to do. And I think that there's a way that God is trying to bring things into our life that would cultivate a biblical masculinity that would push us in the direction of, of resisting passivity and resisting cowardice and embracing courage. Because... It would be very difficult to <clears throat> overlook the fact that these things can be cultivated. Just like humility, God can bring things in your life to help cultivate humility. I think he will and does bring things in our life to cultivate masculinity. You can look at David's experiences to see. I mean, David has a whole history here. And he's even on his last words with his son there's, there's a history here it's not the first conversation they've ever had and you look at the life of david when david goes to saul you got goliath out there insulting the people of god and david says why are we letting him do that i'm gonna i'm gonna go have to go kill that guy and saul says yeah i don't think so you're not gonna do that and david says yeah yeah i'm already i've already killed a bear and a lion and uh that guy's gonna be like them and then he says something interesting he says God delivered me from the bear and the lion. So again, David is coming back and back to this idea that it's not just, um, this isn't just be stronger, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's an acknowledgement of the work of God in one's life. So what David is saying to Saul is, I did actually grab the bear and grab the lion and do whatever jujitsu I did on the thing, but I'm acknowledging I would have not have been able to do that were it not for God. So he's ultimately giving God the credit for the victory. I mean, can you imagine how many times David told that story to Solomon, killing Goliath? I mean, if that were me, how many times do you think you'd be telling your son? I mean, it might be telling my boys. I still tell my boys stories all the time that aren't even close to killing Goliath, right? I mean, my high school, you know, little league regaling them with stories about a home run I hit or something like that. If I killed Goliath, they'd be, they'd be hearing about that almost every day. Boys, if you ever t- did I tell you the story about that time I killed that giant? Because <clears throat> what's going on in David's life? As a young man, he's tending sheep. He's a shepherd. He's tending sheep. And he's tending sheep. He doesn't have a gun. 
He probably has some kind of light, maybe. He might have a knife. He's got a staff. He may have a spear laying around somewhere. But he's, he's out there <coughs> in the wilderness. These aren't just lit up areas, okay? They, they didn't even have electricity. There's, there's out in the wilderness with bears and lions tending bear and lion food. I mean, you're just, you're just bait sitting out there waiting on a bear and a lion. And so a bear comes up. And David kills a bear with his bare hand. Now, I got to tell you something. If you kill a bear with your bare hands, uh, you wake up the next morning with a little more confidence in the Lord, don't you? Right? A little more confidence in God. And frankly, feeling like, you know what? I think I can handle some few things that come my way here. And then a lion. Have you ever seen a lion up close? I mean, you've, you've probably seen one on TV, and you've seen him chase down an animal and kill it on television. Have you ever seen one? You ever heard one roar? Uh, I was at the Louisville Zoo a few years ago, and the ground shook. And I thought we were in an earthquake. I thought it was an earthquake. And then it did it again. And all of a sudden, these people start running. I'm thinking, okay, people are panicking. They're wearing an earthquake, and they're running, but they're not running for shelter. They're running to the lion pit. And I hear everybody saying, the lion's roaring. The lion's roaring. I've never heard anything like it. I walked over there, and that thing, there was somebody in the audience going, rawr, and then the lion would respond, rawr, and the ground shook. And I just said, you know what, my friend, you are the king of the beasts. I mean, I know why you have that name. You kill one of those with your bare hands? That thing comes out, and it's a killing machine, and you kill one of those with your bare hands? And now, can you imagine David thinking, what in the world is going on? I'm trying to mind my own business. I'm trusting in God. I'm just tending these sheep like my father told me. I'm just being an obedient son. And I've got bears and lions coming out of here. You see, God, God is going to bring stuff in my life and your life because he's doing something in your life and my life. He's doing something. Why was David, why was David not afraid of Goliath? I mean, the guy is just because... <clears throat> that guy's killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands, and he acknowledges God delivered me from the hand of the bear and the lion. There's no reason why God can't deliver me from the hand of that guy. Wear some armor, suit me up. I'm going, let's go. Let's get it on. And I think what happens in the lives of men <clears throat> is two things. One, we just, we don't, we don't see it because a bear and a lion, that's a big thing. We think we would recognize, oh yeah, if that happened in my life, I would see it as, I think God's just bringing in a lot of smaller things in your life that you don't recognize. Dennis Rainey from Family Life is very <coughs> well known for asking men this question. What's the most courageous thing you've ever done? And he'll, he'll say, men, women will say, well, I don't think I've done anything courageous. And they'll say, no, I think you have. You just, you just don't see it as courageous. And they'll be, well, I've stayed married for, for 25 years. Yeah, that's courageous. You know, I've, I've, I've stayed faithful to my wife for 15 years. Yeah, that's courageous. You know, I'm trying to be faithful and provide for my family. That's, that's courage. And we're not, I'm not talking about stories where somebody dove on a grenade or saved a, somebody in a burning building. Those are, those are extreme stories that, that do happen. But what about just in your own life? Because what I'm talking about is just the daily grind of living your life before the Lord. I have my 15-year-old son, Fisher, here with me. My 17-year-old son, just about a month and a half ago, came back from Haiti. He was in Haiti for six weeks. And we talked about when he got back, and, you know, he said, I don't feel like I had a, some kind of mountaintop 
extreme experience. And I said, yeah, I'm glad you didn't have that. I don't want you to have that. Because we're not living from mountaintop to mountaintop. We're living from the daily grind. And what I just wanted you to see is daily faithfulness in your life. And hopefully you read your Bible a little more and you were able to serve and understand lost people a little more and get a burden for what's going on around the world and seeing people that have challenges in their life. But I don't want you living from mountaintop to mountaintop. That's not how God always does it. It's day in and day out. And I'm trying to train my sons in particular, but I would encourage you to see. So there's just five quick things or six quick things that I would acknowledge. One, God is going to bring some tasks into your life. All of you have things that have to be taken care of tomorrow. Half of you are thinking about them already. Tonight, what you have to get done tomorrow. Everybody has a list of things. So when you do those things tomorrow, do the hardest one first, if you can. Or for the week, do the hardest thing this week. No, the hardest thing, not the easiest thing. Because if you do the hardest thing, that puts you in a habit of resisting passivity and tackling the biggest thing first, and that's how you cultivate something like courage. So courage is not just the absence of cowardice. So it's not just how to deal with cowardice. It's how am I going to cultivate courage in my life? And one way I'm going to do that is go after the hardest task first. But the second thing is, is make the hardest phone call first. Some of you are good with the task, but you're not good with the people part of things. Uh, a lot of men have what the Bible calls the fear of man. And uh, <clears throat> you're, you're worried about what people think. You're worried about how you're going to come off. You're worried about whether or not you're going to be viewed as successful or not. And you worry too much about what other people think. And it's called a fear of man. That the Bible calls it a fear of man. And this can be a challenge. So in my life, I try to have the difficult conversation first. Sometimes I have to apologize to somebody. I don't like apologizing. I never want to apologize. <clears throat> but because it means I did something I wasn't supposed to do. I said something I wasn't supposed to say. But if I have, that's the conversation I have first as opposed to if I'm going to give somebody a raise. That's an easy one to have. I'm going to do that later. If I have to fire somebody, if I have to correct somebody, if I have to make something right with somebody I've let go too long, either way, I make the hardest call First, I do the most difficult conversation in as much as I can first before I do the others because in my relationships, I want to build courage, not cowardice. The third thing is run to the battle. Now, I didn't say start the battle. There's some of you, and I don't know who you are, some of you just love a good fight and you're just anxious to get one started anytime you want to. That's not the Christian life. You're not supposed to be that guy. But you're also not supposed to run if there's a conflict. If there's a challenge, I want my boys to take a step toward it. Not rush in where fools fear to trod. I mean, uh, fools rush in where wise men fear to trod. Not to rush in, but to take a step. If, if God has put something in front of you, then he's put it in front of you. And your first step is, hey, hey that's not my business. I'm going to let that go. That's not, no, it is your business because God made it your business by plopping it right in front of you. Now, how you handle the business is different. I'm encouraging my boys to take a look. Is there an emergency? Is somebody hurt? I got to jump in here? Then you jump in and you just figure out what you need to do. Is it, hey, this is not an emergency. This is a problem. It's not an emergency. I need to go, and I don't know anything about this problem, so I'm going to go find somebody who does know something about this problem. So everything that gets put in front of you is, has a triage you go through to see if it's an emergency or if it's not. But you don't run away from the battle, you take a step toward it because you're involved. I've had all sorts of things happen to me 
in the city of Louisville since I've lived here for 17 years. Twice since I've lived here. I've been in a Kroger parking lot getting, I have to stop and get stuff all the time. We have eight children. Um, I mean, just something as simple as milk. Like we drink 32 gallons of milk a month. So I'm always drinking, we're always getting milk. I don't even ask my wife, do you need to get, do we need milk? I just stop and get it and just get two or three gallons. We, it never goes bad. It never, go, I mean, we just drink it. And I've been in the parking lot of Kroger twice where I observed, I got out of my car and there's a man and a woman and it's obvious they're in an argument and the man pushes her. Twice that's happened to me. Well, 911, something's getting ready to go down right now. And I'm no street fighter. I don't really, I've got a little plan if I have to get into it, but I'm no big time street fighter. But I, I had to get involved. I didn't just say, that's not my business because now it is my business. Now, and in both cases, I walked over very slowly, and I just said, after I got, I mean, I didn't walk right up on him, but I just, hey, hey, uh, is everything okay? And that's all I had to do, and thank the Lord, but, and, but then you know, I was praying like crazy walking over there, but is everything okay? And it was enough where it just kind of jolted him back into reality, and she said, yeah, everything's fine, and he said, yeah, everything's fine. Do you need any help? No, we're good, and they just kind of walked off their separate ways. But you take a step toward it, not away. That's how you cultivate courage and not passivity. Number four, do your work now as opposed to later. This is just sheer procrastination. You procrastinator? Being a procrastinator will cultivate passivity in your life, which will cultivate cowardice in your life. Do your work now as opposed to later, from term papers to tax filing, whatever you got going on. Don't put it off until the last minute. That will do nothing but undermine what God is trying to... God's bringing that assignment into your life. You need to believe that, that God is bringing that assignment into your life, whatever it is, and whoever gave it to you, and you don't even have to like the person that gave you the assignment, but ultimately, it's your assignment now. God gave it to you. Now do the assignment, whether it be a term paper or filling out your taxes or whatever it might be. Number five, keep your domain in order because a biblical version of a vision of manhood is not whoever can kill the most deer and whoever's the best athlete and a lot of things that we tend to associate with, with manhood. Manhood is about order. When God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, he says, be fruitful, multiply, exercise dominion and subdue the earth. That's at the core of the, of the manhood assignment. Exercise dominion, subdue the earth. They were supposed to fill the earth with worshipers of God, and they were supposed to exercise dominion and till the ground and, and set it up so stuff would grow and order the world around them. And <clears throat> one of the ways that you can measure your own level of mass biblical masculinity is how much order are you bringing to the world around you? Order your domain. So you younger men, I don't see a whole lot of you here, but uh, you younger men, I would ask you, what does your bedroom look like at home? That's always how I measure Fisher. Here, one of the ways is, what does your bedroom look like? I mean, God's asking you to exercise dominion over the whole earth. And all he's giving you right now is just this little 15 by 15 square. How you handle that will largely determine what maybe God might or might not give you later on. And even if he gives you nothing later on, he's not obligated to give you anything. But he has given you this little square. So does it look like a bomb went off in there? Or is there order being brought? Are you demonstrating your masculinity by the order that's being brought there? So some of you men, what's your garage look like? 
What's the back of your car like? If I went out in your car right now, what's your car look like? Are there like 40 Burger King bags in there and old French fries smashed in the carpet? Just order. Exercise dominion. Now, everybody has the occasional messy desk, messy office, messy garage, messy house, messy this or that. But is your life characterized by disorder? If it is, what I would suggest is that you're not being asked to kill a bear or a lion, but God has put some things in your life for you to practice. You say, well, what does that have to do with cowardice? Well, that, don't let your domain exercise dominion over you. You will begin to have a level of biblical courage when you begin to see the things that you're able to order around you. And then finally, number six would be kill a bear or a lion. Now, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, there are places where you can actually go and, and, and you pay a lot of money and you can go on a, on a safari and you can kill a bear or a lion. <clears throat> and look, when I, when I mentioned, you know, even David killing a bear and a lion or even Goliath, I mean, these, these, these biblical stories are not just about go kill the lions in your life and go kill the Goliath in your life. In fact, the David and Goliath story, we're actually Goliath. Uh, not, uh, we're not David slaying all our, all our enemies and uh, curing all of our problems. We're actually Goliath, if we're anybody in that story. Uh, ones who are enemies of God, and yet God reaches out to us. Um, but I just mean, some of you probably have something big in your life right now that would be the equivalent of a bear or a lion. Uh, some of you have a marital situation maybe where it's just time for you to exercise some courage and you've let something go too long and you need to go apologize. Some of you have a somebody you're estranged from that neither one of you has made the move to work it out and probably ought to just be you. Those are big things that might already exist in your life. You might have somebody that you need to share the gospel with and you kind of know it. You've gone to coffee, you've had the dinner, you've done all the relationship building, and it's just time to go and sit down and say, man, listen, I hope you know I love you, I've I've built a friendship with you, but i got to tell you something, the most important thing in my whole life, and it's time for me to tell you about it. It might be a Bible study you need to start, it might be a neighbor you need to invite over and start building a relationship with them, and you've just been nervous about it. Being nervous... Uh, is not any kind of indicator you shouldn't do something. I've been nervous about almost all the good, tons of good things in my life. I get nervous when I speak in front of people still. I think I'm supposed to. I get nervous uh, when I'm about to pull the trigger on a deer, and I've done it a, a, a bunch of times. Not a hundred, but a bunch of times. I get nervous when the deer walks out. The deer's not even coming after me. Uh, that deer can't even get me. I'm 20 feet up in the deer stand. I get nervous when that thing walks out. I get nervous when I have to apologize. I get nervous when I'm ready to share the gospel with somebody. I mean, being nervous, uh, we say, well, you know, I don't feel a peace about it. Well, why do you think you don't feel a peace about it? Well, my heart's beating fast. Well, that just means you're chicken. Now, that's okay to be chicken and do it anyway. If you know it's right, do it anyway. That's what I'm talking about. A fast-beating heart, uh, I remember trying to help my kids understand that sometimes when your heart's beating fast, you just do it anyway. We went to... a uh, used to have Kentucky Kingdom here in town, and we used to live over there. I remember taking Gunner and Georgia. They just were tall enough to ride a real roller coaster. And uh, we got on it. We were getting in line. I said, we're going to ride that roller coaster. And they said, we don't want to ride that roller coaster. I said, I know you don't. That's why we're going to walk around here for 15 minutes and let you kind of get over that little fear. And then 
We're going to come back here, and you can embrace it, and we're going to ride that roller coaster. So, Gunner, you're going first. Okay. So we come back 15 minutes later, and we're walking in that line. About every 10, 10 feet, I'd say, is your heart beating fast? Yes, sir. I said, mine too. Mine too. Just trying to train them up that your heart beating fast doesn't automatically mean you don't do what you're about to do. And so we get on that thing, and we're going click, 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 click. And I say, is your heart beating fast? Yes, sir. My heart's beating really fast. Mine too. And I'm, I don't even think anything bad's going to happen. I'm just, my, I'm just, this is just a lot of adrenaline going on in right now. And we get there. We ride the thing. What's he want to do at the end? Let's ride it again. What are we learning? Just because your heart's beating fast, there could be something really awesome on the other side of that. So kill a barrel line. There may be things in your life right now that you just know you need to do. And God will use these things. These things, climbing a, climbing a mountain and killing a bear and shooting a deer, none of these things constitute, make you a man. None of it makes you a man, but God will bring and I do think he's bringing just daily things into your life that if you'll view them as means that he's bringing into your life to cultivate a courageous manhood, then I think we'll start to embrace these little challenges, not as nuisances, but as opportunities that we see God bringing to help us be courageous men. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the men in this room. I pray that <clears throat> we would not leave this room without understanding that this is a gospel-driven approach to manhood. It is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but it is, it is based on Christ-like, authentic manhood that is rooted in the gospel, empowered by the gospel. And thank you that the gospel can redeem our fallen manhood and help us be men of great courage. I do pray that uh, if there is a, a, a man in this room tonight that doesn't know your son, the Lord Jesus, that you would give him even the courage right now to think about which man he might ask uh, about more, uh, to get more information about that. Thank you for the men in this room, and I pray that you'll give them great courage as they uh, try to live the gospel out as courageous men. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.